Hear now God's holy word from Matthew chapter 2, continuing our study in Matthew's gospel, picking up right after the wise men have departed. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Hey, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you and rejoice that we are able to worship together today, that you have preserved us through the storm, that we are in a warm place, and that we get to open your word and read and hear and study Uh, and and hear you speak to us today. So, Father, guide us into truth by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, whenever somebody shows you a picture of their new baby, or when someone throws a child's birthday party, they go to great expense and effort to throw these elaborate parties, or whenever someone takes time out of their week to coach a youth soccer team, Each one of these acts, and many more like them, are expressing an entirely unique, distinctly Christian perspective on the value of children. Children have not always, and in every part of the world, have not always been treasured or adored the way that we adore children. Children have suffered some of the worst abuses and some of the worst neglect ever expressed against other humans in history. The Christian faith, however, has called the world to cherish children, to protect them, to defend them, to nourish them. And this is following the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus called children to himself. Jesus rebuked the apostles who would keep them away from him. Jesus forbade anyone to do anything to harm them. It's better than a millstone be tied around your neck and you be thrown into the sea rather than to hurt one of my little ones. But this perspective that Jesus brings was revolutionary in the ancient pagan world. The historian O.M. Bakke describes early Greek and Roman attitudes toward children in his book, When Children Became People. He writes, 
that children in the ancient world were generally considered to be non-persons. Society was organized around the desires and the comforts of the highest value person, who was, of course, the freeborn adult male, and the worth of everyone else was evaluated by how similar or different they were from the most powerful members of society. And so foreigners and slaves and women fell in descending order down the list as less valuable. And of course, children were the least useful, the least relevant, the least important of all. And so Backy points out how various pagan authors describe children as being more like plants than human beings. The ancient world also was a time of of high infant mortality, and most men did not get emotionally attached. Most pagan men, of course, men in Israel, loved their children because uh, these, these children are children of the covenant. God taught men to love their children, but in the pagan world, men did not get emotionally attached to their children until they were much older, until they survived infancy on into early childhood. The fact that mothers did develop attachments to their babies was just another sign to them of the weakness and the irrationality of women. Why would you get attached if they're just going to die? And now, even if your children did thrive and grow, affluent parents really did not interact with their children. Children would have been raised by slaves and subjected to harsh treatment. Beatings and deprivations were a normal part of their education. Roman fathers even had a right to execute their sons up until adulthood, and nobody could say anything about it. You could just execute your own son, and you had a right to do that until your son became an adult. Babies who were born with deformities or illnesses were uh, were just left out, exposed. Babies who were simply unwanted would be abandoned. And girls were exposed and abandoned more than boys. Sometimes these cast-off children would be taken in by the priests of the pagan shrines. And if you know anything about ancient paganism, you know those shrines were nothing more than brothels. And so the children were raised in, in those shrines and forced to earn their keep there. These are, all the, these are the realities of living in a society where there's this widespread cultural antipathy toward children. And Backy points out in his book that, that this is the world that the church came into. The church came into this world preaching against abortion and exposure and abuse and neglect of children. And as the church spread throughout the ancient world, it was Christians who began rescuing abandoned babies and raising them in Christian homes. The church came into this world with the words of Jesus, imitating his love for children, ascribing to children a worth that was incomprehensible to ancient pagans. In this way, the Christian church is responsible for creating this concept of childhood, this this present concept of childhood in the West. It's important to have this context for what's happening here in Matthew's gospel and for us to understand what's going on and the way that Herod responds to the news of the birth of Jesus. Herod issues an edict that's tragic. It's horrific. It is a pure nightmare. There are are a couple of chapters in the Bible that each time I revisit them and study them, it it literally makes me nauseated to read them. And this is one of those. What he does here is unbelievable. It's unspeakable. And yet, it is entirely in keeping with how 
anyone in that world would have expected a man like Herod to act in a world where children are of no more value than houseplants. What is it to destroy a few of them if it means that Herod can be secure on his throne and do whatever he wants? Matthew gives us these details to underscore what kind of man Herod is, to show us what kind of ruler Israel is subjected to right now, and what kind of world Jesus is born into, for us to be able to grasp the depth of darkness that the light of Christ broke into. Jesus didn't come to save a world that was just a little off course. Jesus didn't come into a world that, you know, just needed a little tweaking, just a few corrections, a few band-aids and hugs. It was mostly okay, just a little off. No, this is a world that is profoundly broken where a king who feels threatened by babies has them destroyed with the flick of his wrist. Into this world, Jesus was born as a vulnerable baby. Let's remember where we left off in our study. Sometime after the, book, uh, after the birth of Jesus, magi, counselors, wise men from a foreign kingdom travel to Jerusalem to worship the boy Jesus and to present their gifts to him. They show up at Herod's palace expecting Herod to know what's going on, to know where to point them, and Herod is deeply distressed by their visit, and he wraps all of Jerusalem up into his anxiety. Herod says to the wise men, my Bible scholars say that you should check around Bethlehem and maybe you could find him there, and if you find the boy, let me know where he is so that I can worship him too. Of course, Herod has no interest in worshiping the boy. The wise men depart Herod's palace. They go, are led by a star to the house where Jesus is. They present their gifts, but God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod, and they leave town. Now, as we open this section, Joseph is also warned by an angel in a dream to leave immediately and take Mary and Jesus to Egypt. Notice that Matthew often makes a point of letting us know wherever Jesus fulfills any Old Testament prophecy. Scholars have counted something like 332 Old Testament prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, which were fulfilled in the Gospels. And these prophecies are so unique and so complex, there's no way that anyone could have just happened to fulfill even a handful of them if they tried. I mean, how can you determine where you are born? That's impossible. In chapter 1, Matthew quoted Isaiah to remind us that the one who will be called Emmanuel, the one who will be God with us, would be born of a virgin. In chapter 2, Matthew uh, quoted the scribes who quote Micah, who recall that the true shepherd of Israel would be born in Bethlehem. And then we also saw about five different ways that the visit of the wise men were fulfilled, um, were fulfilling prophecies from the Old Testament. And now in this text, we get three more fulfillments of prophecy. Something happens, and, and Matthew reminds us this was told uh, to us by the prophets. And then something else happens, and then Matthew quotes a prophet. And then yet a third thing happens, and he says, this is all in the prophets. Uh, so there's an account, and then there's this reminder of the prophecy that told us about this thing that would happen. So let's look at these three things that happen in this text, and we'll look at the thing and the prophecy together with it. The first section tells us about how Joseph is warned in a dream, get out of Bethlehem, take your family to Egypt, and then Matthew quotes the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I have called my son. You might think, wait, Joseph is going into Egypt, 
The prophet Hosea is talking about coming out of Egypt. Isn't that misplaced? Shouldn't Matthew have saved that one and quoted it later when they leave Egypt? Well, no. The application here is deliberate. Hosea is recounting how in the Exodus, Israel, who is called God's son, Israel was delivered by night out of an idolatrous land of death where baby boys were slaughtered. We're talking about Egypt. How they were delivered at night from this place, delivered from the murderous Pharaoh. Now, Matthew applies that and tells us how God's son, Jesus, is delivered by night out of an idolatrous land of death where baby boys are slaughtered, delivered from the murderous Herod. By quoting Hosea here, Matthew's doing a little commentary. He's saying Israel is a lot like Egypt right now. Israel is not a safe place. It's a condemnation on Israel that baby boys are safer in Egypt than they are in Israel. There are other parallels here. We have a dreaming Joseph in Matthew's gospel who goes down into Egypt for the provision and deliverance of his brothers and and ultimately the world is delivered because of what this dreaming Joseph does. It reminds us of another dreaming Joseph who is sent down to Egypt, whose captivity works out for the provision of his brothers and for the whole world, the deliverance of the whole world. In both, uh, both accounts, both Josephs, men do things for evil, but God works out these events for good. It's worth noting that at this time in history, people from Judea had made kind of a habit of going down to Egypt for refuge, such that there was a considerable Jewish population in the Egyptian city of Alexandria. Maybe as many as a million Jews lived in Alexandria at this time. So there was a soft landing place for Joseph and Mary and Jesus. There was a community there. God had prepared the way for them to go there and to be protected and provided for through exile, even prospered there. And this God always does this for his people. He'll draw them out from one place, but they're never on their own. They're always protected and provided for. And the Lord does this for Joseph. And so we come to the second narrative block. It begins when Herod learns that the wise men had left town without paying him a visit. I told those guys to come back and they just left. And he becomes exceedingly angry. Herod lashes out with a decree to put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of its districts, everyone who are two years old and under. This is Herod's irrational, tyrannical, murderous hatred poured out on the people he's called to serve. How easily he's provoked to murder. He is the false shepherd that that Micah warned Israel about in the prophecy that we read last time. His action here, Herod's action, can only be described as satanic. Satan has two principal agendas in the world. When it comes to the people that God loves, Satan has two agendas. He aims to corrupt the bride and destroy her children. Because God told Satan that the seed of the woman would crush his head, he's always been about the business of drawing away, of corrupting the bride, the church, the people of God, enticing her, deceiving her into believing a lie, corrupting her with idolatry, leading her to doubt instead of trust, did God really say? Drawing her to ingratitude instead of thankfulness. And if he can corrupt her, then he seeks to destroy her children. Because if he ruins the children, he ruins the future. 
Where there are no children, there is no future. So he does everything he can to cultivate a hatred for children, a, a disgust for children, to destroy them in the womb if he can. And if he can't destroy them in the womb, then he'll destroy their lives. To cause children to hate themselves. You aren't sons of God. You're sons of protoplasm. You're sons of apes. He whispers lies. You're a mistake. You're born wrong. You're a defect. You are a parasite on the earth. You don't belong here. The earth would be just fine without you. Uh, this is not the realm of your dominion. Again, you're a, you're a parasite. That's the message of environmentalism. Um, he whispers lies. He, he tells children, don't live a life that is pointed toward fruitfulness of your own, toward children of your own, productivity and marriage as men and women. No, he says the opposite of that. He says to young men, you aren't really even a boy to begin with. Don't be grateful that you're a boy. Don't give thanks that God made you a boy. Something is wrong with you. You don't belong in the fellowship of men. And such a failure of a boy, and since you're such a disappointment, maybe you'd be better off pretending to be a girl. Try that. See if that works out for you. And little girl, don't. Don't be thankful that God made you to grow up to be a woman. Hate yourself. Hate your body. Go to war against yourself. Destroy every trace of femininity. See how you do as a boy. See, it's your choice after all. Uh, be whoever you want to be. Or if you happen to become pregnant, well, just destroy that baby. It doesn't count. The baby doesn't count because you don't count. You don't matter. Your life is no more precious than a houseplant. You see how ancient these lies are. You don't matter. Your babies don't matter. Do whatever is convenient right now. These are all the child-destroying, innocence-robbing, perverted lies of Satan. And we have to identify them as such, sniff them out and point them out and say, that's a lie. This is all part of the ancient agenda to destroy the offspring, corrupt the bride, destroy her offspring. And so we do not tolerate those lies, but we rebuke them. We counter them. We oppose them with every fiber of our being. Because we oppose Satan. They're his lies. This satanic Herod issues his cowardly, vile, horrible edict. And it's carried out by murderous men. I don't know what's worse, the fact that he said this or he could find guys to carry it out. Children are killed and their mothers weep. So Matthew concludes the second block by quoting from Jeremiah. In verse 18, he says, A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's Jeremiah. And in its original context, Jeremiah is writing about the Babylonian captivity, which was in his near future. Jeremiah was looking forward to the Babylonian captivity. He mentions Ramah, a city in the territory of Benjamin. And he mentions Rachel, as you'll remember, was the mother of Benjamin, Rachel died in childbirth. Benjamin was the baby of the family. Benjamin was Jacob's uh, precious son. He didn't want to let him out of his sight. You remember that whole story. And so Jeremiah 
imagines the compounded grief of Rachel as she watches her beloved children being led away captive into exile. Her baby boy Benjamin going away from the land, going away from her, and she laments and mourns for her children who are going away from her perspective who are no more. She grieves. These children of Rachel are likewise being taken away by a wicked monarch. Matthew picks up on Jeremiah's expression of Rachel's grief. Now, when we go back and we read Jeremiah, Jeremiah doesn't leave us grieving. Jeremiah talks about a triumphant return from exile. And Matthew quotes Jeremiah because he wants us to remember that. He said, I know you know Jeremiah, and I know you know what he's saying there, and I want you to remember that undercurrent of joy, that even in the midst of unimaginable tragedy, God's purposes are working out for salvation and deliverance. God is going to overrule the edict of Nebuchadnezzar who takes children away in Jeremiah's day, and he's gonna overrule the edict of Herod as well. Matthew applies Jeremiah's prophecy so that we can remember, yeah, this has happened before. Satan has broke out in attacks against the offspring. And through Israel's various oppressions and exiles and returns, Matthew is reminding of this by referencing Jeremiah, and he's saying that this present tragedy sits in a long line of Israel's continued exile, and the cries of these mothers are only going to be answered by the true shepherd, the true Messiah, who who is going to bring a deliverance that none of these others have ever been able to bring. He alone can break the cycle. All these other shepherds, all of these other kings can't bring you deliverance. They will continue to fail you. Do not trust them. Of course, Israel tragically ignores that message because within a generation they will say, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. They lose the message that Matthew is preaching. Some of them hear, but many of them do not. Well, the third narrative block begins with the most hopeful verse and my favorite verse in the chapter, verse 19, now when Herod was dead. That's a beautiful promise, and that is a beautiful reminder that Herod's die. Whatever crafty, devilish conspiracies and schemes Herod had worked out to maintain his power to maintain his authority, all of that eventually comes to an end when he drew his last breath. Kings come and kings go. But God's people endure from generation to generation, and God continues his mercies to his people. Joseph and Mary and Jesus are in Egypt when Herod dies, and so God sends an angel to Joseph notifying him of Herod's death and telling him he should go back to the land of Israel. Now, Joseph doesn't waste any time. He is used to listening to angels by this point. He's used to following their advice, and he does. He returns home, though. He gets back to Judea, and he finds out a new challenge because Herod's son rules over the territory of Judea. And so Joseph is warmed in a dream again. And so Joseph takes his family all the way north, out from under where this new Herod is ruling, all the way to Galilee, to an obscure town of Nazareth. And this unit, this third section, ends with the third fulfillment of prophecy. Now, Matthew doesn't mention a specific prophecy this time. First, he quotes Hosea. We all know he's quoting Hosea. Second time, he quotes Jeremiah, word for word. He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. The third time, though, he doesn't name a specific prophet prophet. 
Matthew writes, he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's a puzzle. None of the Old Testament prophets say this. No text, no one text says this. And the name of the town Nazareth doesn't show up in the Old Testament. Well, Matthew says the prophets. So what is he talking about here? Who is he talking about? What he's doing, Matthew is drawing together multiple themes and multiple pictures and references to get to this. What is he talking about? How does he get to Nazareth and, and this statement? This is fulfilled by the prophets. Well, you've heard of Nazarites, and often it's very easy to confuse Nazareth and Nazarite. In Numbers chapter 6, God tells his people how there can be this class of holy warriors set aside for special duty. You've got to take a vow. There are certain things you must abstain from. I'm going to call these Nazarites, and we transliterate that N-A-Z-I-R-I-T-E-S. The root word is Nazar, N-A-Z-I-R. That word Nazar is the Hebrew verb to abstain from or to consecrate to, something set aside for a special purpose, in a sense, to make something holy. And Matthew's quote here sounds a little bit like what was said at the birth of Samson. Samson was a Nazarite from birth. He was a holy warrior set aside for a special purpose of deliverance in God's war through his people against the Philistines. And, and here's what we read in Judges 13 about Samson. For the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And so that sounds similar to what Matthew is saying here. Samson was set apart to God. He was a holy warrior. He was a deliverer. He was Nazar, N-A-Z-I-R. But that word Nazar also sounds like the Hebrew word for branch, which is Nazar, N-A-Z-A-R. Now, if you've never picked up on this before, Hebrew can be very punny. And there are plays on words, especially in the prophets. Micah loves puns. Micah will name a place, and the judgment of the place will rhyme with the name of the town. Um, he, he does that throughout his prophecy. And there are many places where Messiah is called a Nazar, a branch. I'm just going to read a few. Zechariah 3.8, Behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch, Nazar. Zechariah 6.12, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch, Nazar, shall grow out of his roots. Have you ever cut a tree down and you've got this stump and then it, like, it determines that it's going to still grow and there's a little stick that just comes out from the root or it just comes out from the stump. You've seen that happen before and that's what God has done with Israel. He's cut down Israel. But here Messiah, is this, it's this little new growth, this little stick, this little rod, this little stem, this little branch, Nazar. Well, Isaiah goes on to describe this branch. He says, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. That describes that branch that comes out of the stump. 
Isaiah 4.2, just one more. In that day, the branch, the Nazar of Yahweh, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. So who is this branch? Who is the Nazar? Well, obviously, it's Jesus. The Nazar is Jesus. The branch is Jesus. Who is the Nazirite? Who is the Nazir, the holy one, the holy warrior? Well, that's also Jesus. The Nazar, the Nazir. So what Matthew is doing remarkably, and I can tell you're all on the edge of your seat here. I can tell this is gripping for you. But what Matthew is doing is a wordplay and saying that Jesus is the Nazirite. Jesus is the Nazar who grew up in Nazareth. And Matthew just confidently puts this out there and said, yeah, all the prophets said this. Yeah, you should know this. They all agree with me. Um, he just asserts this as if we could have gotten there if we just thought hard enough about it. And of course, Matthew walked with Jesus and Matthew would have had all of these things explained to him by Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus walked through the law and the prophets and explained these things to the apostles and taught them everything that pointed to himself. I'm taking a few minutes here because occasionally we read occasionally. Often we read the Bible for all it's worth. We do something called interpretive maximalism. We're looking at all the themes and all the parallels and all the interconnections of scriptures. We're trying to see how it all fits together and all the symbols. And sometimes you're left scratching your head saying, are you allowed to do that? Can, can, how'd you get there? And I know you've read Peter Lightheart and I know you led, you've read James Jordan and you, you wonder, uh, can, can you read the Bible that way? Well, let's look. How does the Bible read the Bible? That's what I want to know. How does the Bible interpret the Bible? Well, if Matthew can get away with this, boy, I'm not even close to what Matthew's doing here. But he is pulling these things together in an extraordinary way, and he just puts it out there. Yeah, this is what's happening. The Nazarite, the Nazar, the branch, comes from Nazareth. It's so obvious. You should be able to see that, is what Matthew is doing. Well, um, Jesus is delivered from death here, Wonderfully, God protects his son. Jesus escapes the sword of Herod, but that escape is only temporary. In about 30 years from this point, Mary is going to be joining the lamentation of the mothers of Bethlehem. Her voice is going to join Rachel in her weeping, in her weeping for her son. Mary is going to watch her son die. And just like these fathers of Bethlehem, God the Father is going to watch his innocent son die. As utterly painful and as heart-sickening as these, the, these lives lost are to us to read about, and we can't even imagine what it was like to experience this, God does not put these mothers or these fathers or these sons through something that he and his son are not willing to go through themselves. He, he has never put us through something that he is not willing to go through himself. He bears our suffering with us. And so we're never alone in our sorrow. We're never alone in our trouble or our pain. And when you read about this horrible thing, it, you, we tend to want to understand the meaning of things like this, to discern the purpose of it, not to diminish its weight, or to try to explain it away and act like it really isn't that big deal because we don't want to do anything to dismiss the very real indescribable grief of these families, but we do want to process it to think through it biblically. What does God say about these kinds of things? We want to see it like God sees it. How do we make sense of this? First, we see that these little boys in Bethlehem were the first martyrs for Jesus. 
Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake. And these boys were all persecuted for the sake of Jesus. They were put to death for the sake of Jesus. Even though they had no say in the matter, these little boys still died for the name of Jesus. Their short lives were not lived in vain. God harvested their fruit when it was ripe. When their time was full, when he was satisfied with them, he plucked their fruit. And I have no doubt that these boys are the first martyrs under the altar who cry out for vengeance in the book of Revelation. They're carried from Bethlehem right to glory where they sit under the heavenly throne and petition God to deal with all such murderous tyrants. Secondly, in this event, we see how God uses a faithful father, Joseph, who obeys and heeds the warning to get his son away from Herod. Faithful fathers do not submit their sons to Herod's. Faithful fathers don't expose their sons to Herod. They protect them. They defend their families from Satan and his followers. Sometimes that means strategic resistance and disobedience to Herod. Sometimes that means fighting back against Herod in uh, proper circumstances. Sometimes that means getting out of town and getting as far away as you can from Herod. But God entrusted his son to a man named Joseph who took this calling seriously and faithfully protected the bride and her offspring. Mary and Jesus protected them from Herod. Likewise, God has also entrusted to us his little saints, expecting the same degree of faithfulness that Joseph displayed. You see, we're not ignorant of the threats of Satan. We're not naive to his devices. We are fully aware of what he is capable of. And we don't live as if he's not a problem. We don't live as if he's benign. Fathers, God is pleased with your sacrifices to not submit your children to Herod. You don't have a boat and you may not have a beach house and you may not be able to take big fancy vacations but you're educating your children and you're raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, God is pleased with you in the way that you're protecting your children from Herod. Mothers, God is pleased with you in those hours of stressful education and work with your children, the way that you have to make sacrifices yourself to keep them out from under Herod's influence. God is pleased with you. Keep it up. Don't flag in your, in your perseverance. Keep it up. Keep your babies away from Herod. God calls faithful parents to do what Joseph did, to keep them away, to protect them. And third, this is a stark reminder of what our enemy is capable of. This shows us what the sons of our enemy are capable of, what their insane hatred of Christ, what their insane hatred of Christ's people drive them toward. We must not forget that the serpent has always targeted the offspring. The children have been his target throughout history. Destroying the offspring is his prime objective. The church in developing Western civilization has created this lovely time called childhood. The church has placed this inestimable value on children. But never ever forget that Satan hates that. 
He hates it. And he's going to continue to do everything he can to drag us back under Herod's and back under Pharaoh's who wantonly kill and corrupt and maim and neuter and pervert and violate children with abandon. We've heard the criticism before that, you know what, y'all just make too big a deal about children. Everything you do and say, you keep children in mind and you focus too much on infant faith and infant baptism and communion for every member of the covenant from the youngest to the eldest. We speak often about Christian education and the importance of it, the training and raising and discipling of our children. We've, we've heard that. I've heard that. You've probably heard that. But you need to know that I'll never take that criticism seriously in such a way that I'm ever going to change anything. In fact, when I hear that, I think, you know, I need to double down probably. You probably need to hear more of that if that's your complaint. And you shouldn't apologize either. You shouldn't back off either. Never apologize for loving and defending the very children that Jesus calls to himself. We love children because we love Jesus. We hate abortion because we love Jesus. We hate everything that harms children because we love Jesus. Even if you don't have children or if you don't have little children at home right now, you love children. Uh, there are any number of health issues that could keep someone from having babies or having as many babies as they want. Uh, maybe your babies have grown up. Maybe uh, the Lord has you in a state of singleness right now and you don't have babies. That's fine. Love children. Love them. Uh, love them and work to be a part of their lives because you love Jesus. And if it appears that we've gone off the deep end in our covenant theology and we put too high a value on children and their place in the kingdom of God, if we get that criticism, it may have less to do with us and more to do with the fact that it looks so out of place. It looks so weird in a world of Herods who hate children. We're fighting uphill against a great resistance this great surge of Herod, Herodian resistance without the church and within the church. Some who would even in ignorance cut off children or despise or restrain or destroy the faith of our weakest, most defenseless members. We, we are working to undo the progress of the church in the world. The church is leading the culture in its, in its antipathy and disregard toward children. Do we even need to mention the disastrous policies of the last couple of years, which have revealed our great social antipathy toward children. How over the last couple of years, children and teens and college students, the class of people who have the most resilience to this kind of disease, they have been the least regarded in the policies which attempt to control it. Children have been made to suffer a great number of deprivations. They have missed out on so many happy events and opportunities. They have been socially warped, emotionally and psychologically damaged under the authority of people who are not looking out for them, but who are only looking out for themselves. The majority of people in government who make these kinds of decisions do not have young children of their own. And all the European heads of state, the oligarchs, the technocrats, they're all childless for the most part. And after all, you know, children don't vote, so what does it matter how we treat them? Well, they'll vote one day, so watch out. And one day they'll be in a position to make decisions for you, so watch out. When Herod issued his decree, Herod did this without hesitation because he believed that the babies in Bethlehem belonged to him. And if they belong to me, I can do what I want. 
He could do whatever he wanted because they were his. And this assumption continues to this day. The assumption is that our children belong to the Herods, that our children belong to the society, that they belong to the state. And this is increasingly where the fight is and where it's going. If you're paying attention, if you are listening, the assumption is in matters of health, in matters of education and sexual identity and sexual reproductivity, your children do not belong to you. They belong to the society. That is the doctrine that's being preached, and we must oppose that. Our children do not belong to Herod. Our children do not belong to the society. Our children do not belong to the village. As someone once said, the only thing that the village can raise is the village idiot. (laughs) Our children belong to Jesus. Our children belong to his covenant. And he has entrusted these children to us for us to raise, for us to disciple, for us to train, for us to educate. My children are my children. They do not belong to the state. They do not belong to Herod. God gave them to me, not to society. And if you think you're going to take them from me, you're going to have to step over my dead body to get to them. This is where the fight is. Expect it. Get ready for it because they know that if we are allowed to train our own children, we're not going to train them in their warped perspectives. We're not going to train them that they're sons of protoplasm or sons of apes or a a, a parasite on the face of the earth. They know we're not going to teach them that, and that scares them to death. Like Herod, they're not going to take that lightly. Herod hated the children in Bethlehem because he hated the child Jesus. Herod hated children because Herod hated Jesus. The world still despises children because it despises Jesus. Children require us to not be selfish, but sacrificial. Children require us to look to the future and be responsible today, to invest our time and energy into things that don't have an immediate payoff. Children demand of us love and mercy and patience and humility, all kinds of things that your average heathen despises, but things that are only possible to us through Christ. We cannot put too much of an emphasis on a proper love and a proper appreciation for children. We oppose Herod and we shut down Satan's mission when we love Jesus and we love children and we defend them. And when we feed their faith and we train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and we don't apologize for it. This is key in our warfare against Satan and against his kingdom because children are his favorite target. They always have been. God has given us the duty to protect them. Like Joseph, he's given them to us to protect and we will by God's grace and by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we have remembered today the slaughter of these children in Bethlehem by King Herod, we ask that you would receive into the arms of your mercy all innocent victims and by your great might frustrate and bring to nothing the designs of evil tyrants and establish your rule of justice, love, and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.